Welcome to From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. It isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how do we respond? Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. And now, here is your host, Dave Hollenbach. Today, I'm talking with retired uh, Navy SEAL uh, Don Mann. He retired after 21 years uh, in the Navy, served as a Navy SEAL, retired as a warrant officer three. He's spent most of his life uh, competing in extreme racing, uh, adventure racing. Uh, you had an experience on, uh, on Mount Everest, summiting that. Uh, did you only try it the one time? Because I thought I read that you, you actually did summit on a different occasion. Okay, um, I, I did about 30 or so mountain climbs before Everest. And I'd say I probably summited maybe 26 or 27 of those. Um, but Everest, I did not summit. I actually got what climbers hate to get because it's a climbing career ending uh, injury. But I got high altitude pulmonary edema, fluid built up in my lungs. Actually, for me, three-fourths of my lungs were fluid, and I was drowning in my own fluids. And when I put my head down, just fluids came out of my nose and mouth for a while, for, for days, and they, they thought I was going to die up there. And then in my brain, the brain cavity has a space in it, and uh, the brain cavity, uh, so the brain, uh, the, the space between the brain and the brain, the cavity itself, my brain, and I lost my color vision, I lost my memory, I didn't know where I was. And those two things hit me like a ton of bricks with no warning at all when I was up on the most dangerous part of Everest called the Kumbu Icefall when you're climbing the ladders. And um, I was climbing a, a vertical ladder and I, all of a sudden, I, moisture, just pure fluid were coming out of my nose and mouth. Then it got dark, I thought, but it really got dark because I lost my color vision. Then I didn't remember where I was, then I couldn't breathe. I just kept choking and coughing. And I passed out on top of the ladder. And the most famous Sherpa in the world, his name's Andre Dorje Sherpa, he came up to me. He was, he's a hero of the Everest movie and Into Thin Air, the book, John Krakow's book. But he pretty much saved my life. I used his oxygen to get back down. And, um, and I couldn't get a helicopter out. And that was just back down to base camp. You know, he's still 20,000 feet. But I couldn't get out of there. Um, because of a bad storm. So they didn't think I was going to make it until the next day. And a helicopter pilot came in. He's a Swedish guy, really, really nice guy. Actually, he was all televised. They were doing a story on Everest rescues during the week I had my rescue. <laughs> so uh, he came and picked me up and um, he said, I have some bad news. I'm not acclimatized and I don't have any oxygen. And I couldn't talk. I was just choking and coughing. So the two of us were in very good shape. He got me in that helo and we just went down for an hour down the mountain and um then i got back to Kathmandu and 
got treated there. And it's been three years. I still am not completely recovered. And then when I got back, I got a call from a TV show asking if I'd like to do a paddle across Canada, a 750-mile paddle, and to uh, pretty much do what the early settlers did. I said, yeah, I'd love to, but I'm, I'm kind of suffering from this thing I got on Everest. And I am over 60 years old. They said, yeah, we know who you are. So I went and did that. And I was coughing and choking a bit, but um, I was able to make enough money on that to pay off my house by finishing that thing. <laughs> and then I, I had a bicycle built. Actually, it's on my wall here at Andy Hampston, Tour de France stage winner. I built it for me. And I got a 90-tooth chain ring put on it. So I'm trying to reach 60 miles an hour on that bicycle. And um, to help my lungs, so I'm, I'm at 53 miles an hour right now. But it's now in my 60s, and I, I like to talk about reaching beyond boundaries and pushing yourself. And now in my 60s, I've climbed higher than I ever did in my life. I've ridden a bike faster than ever, and I did a, the longest paddle I've ever done in my life. So, I'm, so what's happened to me in the last couple of years is what I try to preach all the time, push yourself, push set high, high boundaries and set big, big goals and then macro goals and a series of micro goals to crush those macro goals. And that's, that's how I've been living the last 45 or so years. In addition to your adventure racing and, and mountain climbing, you've, you've also managed to write 20 books. Uh, you're a New York Times bestselling author you're involved with uh, multiple nonprofits. You speak across the country, uh, giving motivational uh, talks, and I'm I'm just uh, I'm really interested in in learning more about you and maybe uh, what kind of led you into the Navy. Um, you know, what was your life like growing up? Did you, did you play competitive sports in high school? I mean, like you're, you're clearly uh, a physical specimen. It, would you associate that with genetics? And I know I'm asking a bunch of questions all, all in a row, but I think they're tied in together. Thanks for your kind words. I really didn't play organized sports other than backyard sports and we played baseball and basketball and football and hockey. I lived up in New England. And uh, so we're, but as far as school goes, the reason I like going to school is because it was a lot of fun. I didn't have any desire to stay longer than the school day to do sports. But we all played sports after school. But my, my big sport was I raced motorcycles. And to me, that was a sport that I didn't think there'd be anything else in this world I wanted to do. But I love racing motorcycles and going off big jumps and and, and, and I got in trouble quite a bit as a kid. And, um, you know, I, I didn't have a license. I was too young at the time. And, you know, we started riding mini bikes, motorcycles, like a lot of kids, fifth grade, sixth grade. But we would outrun the police every time we saw them. And they chased us all the time. So I got in trouble doing that type of thing. And I really didn't have much direction. I love sports. I love the, the physical side of it. I do remember in seventh grade, my parents asked me what I wanted for Christmas. And for some reason, I knew this decision would be a lifelong decision. I liked music a lot and I liked working out a lot. And I always have loved those two things. I can remember my favorite songs in fourth grade, which I still listen to today. 
But music and sports are the two things. And I played saxophone poorly. I was terrible at it. But I was thinking I could get some maybe equipment to be a better sax player, or I can get some weights and try to get stronger. And I decided to go with the weights and um, send my whole life in the direction of sports. And I'm really glad I did that because I wouldn't have gone anywhere in music. I can listen to it, but I couldn't do anything with it. And then with sports, you know, going on to do all the sports I've done in my life and to become a SEAL, that's what I was meant to do. That, I mean, that is what I needed to do and that's what I still do. And I was just very lucky to have found what I liked at an early age. Well, I, I know from talking with, with other Navy SEALs and just um, very experienced leaders that, well, specifically with Navy SEALs, going through BUDS and going through the extensive training that you go through, there is a particular mentality that you've got to have when, when you attack such an incredible um, challenge. And I was wondering if uh, you could talk a little bit about that and maybe where you, you believe you developed that mindset from. Okay. As I mentioned, I didn't really have a background that was going anywhere. I, sports was just backyard things. Um, school wasn't a priority. It was just to have fun. And um, I had a lot of energy. It's always wanting to do something. But I went to college for a year after high school. And I barely made it through high school. I, I did the least amount I can do and still graduate. That was my goal. <laughs> just so I could go out and have fun all the time. But uh, so then I figured I'd better get my act together. And I decided to go to college. A lot of my friends were getting in big trouble at the time. And I knew I didn't want to go down that road. So I decided to be a police officer. I wanted to go to college to become a police officer. So I went to college and um, the professor stood up one day and said, anybody here wants to be a cop because you get to chase the bad guys and go on these high-speed chases and shoot the bad guys and run from building to building. That's not going to happen. That's only TV. You guys are going to be guarding manhole covers. You're going to be criticized. You're going to be you know, uh, spit on by the public. If you pull your gun out once, you're going to lose your career probably. And you've got the highest divorce rate in civil civilian population and the lowest pay. And he turned all of us against it, but he just set the story straight on what it's like being a police officer back then. I know it's worse now. So, and I was thinking, well, so that's that, that little dream I had just got pretty much shattered. Plus, I don't think I could sit for a whole year in college. My father was a real patriot and he always talked patriotism to us all. And he's a World War II vet. And, and I always felt I owed it to my country to do at least two years. And um, so I went to the Navy recruiter and he showed me, a, a, he talked a little bit about SEAL training. And then I saw a video on SEAL training and that changed my life. That video is in my mind, that is all I want in life. I wanna run and do push-ups and pull-ups and sit-ups and, and paddle and work out with the toughest guys in the military and go all over the world. I mean, skydive and dive and shoot and all the things they did. I mean, my life became obsessed with becoming a Navy SEAL. And that was four years before I became a SEAL because I, I was a medic, a corpsman. So I had to do my time with the regular Navy and the Marines before I went to BUDS. And I did, but everything I did was to become a, a, a person better trained. So when I went to BUDS, 
I couldn't be better trained. And I worked out like crazy and um, beyond crazy. I mean, I still, the things I used to do back then, and I'd wake up at midnight to go do my 20 mile run. So I'd be back at 4 a.m. to do my bike rides with the bike races so I could be at work at 7.30 in the morning. That's how my day started. And then at lunch, I'd do my mile and a half swim. And after work, I'd go to the gym and go for another bike ride. I mean, I was beyond obsessed. And as I was getting, you know, I went to Hawaii and I did the Ironman triathlon back then. And I got ranked 38th in the world. And, and I really didn't know what I was doing, but I was just so obsessed. But it was all, the macro goal was to become a SEAL. And then I got orders to SEAL training and I knew for some reason, I don't know, it wasn't in the DNA. My family's not like this. There wasn't anybody else in my family who really thinks the same way. But for some reason, I knew it was going to be very, very painful. And every day was going to be very hurtful. But I did a lot of visualization besides training and lifting and everything I did to get ready for bites. I also visualized how bad and how good it was going to be at the same time. I visualized the long swims and the cold swims and the push-ups and pull-ups and the sit-ups and the soft sand running. I visualized every, every evolution and just how hard it was going to be. So every day at Bud's for the seven months I was there, you go a month early. And then um, every day I'd get back to the barracks thinking, well, today was a tough day, but not as tough as I thought. Every day was easier than I thought it would be because I trained so hard to get ready for it, but I visualized in my mind it would be much, much more difficult. And I always like to pass that along to people who want to be a SEAL or a Marine or something or just somebody who's very physical that do a lot of visualizations, work out harder than anybody. I mean, I never knew anybody worked out as, I still don't. I never knew anybody worked out that hard. I was so obsessed, but you have to think if there's 50 people in line to be a student at Bud's, a Bud's trainee, and you are the best trained there, you're gonna get one of those spots. And if you're not, if people can outrun you and I'll pull up you and I'll push up you and all that and I'll swim you, you might not get a seat at Bud's. And if that's all you want to do in life, you've given up a big part of your life just because you didn't try enough. So I really, I had a saying which sounds extreme and it was extreme, but it helped me out. Blood from any orifice. I, I like to work out until I bled somewhere or until I hallucinated or until I passed out. And I felt if I didn't do that at least monthly, I wasn't giving it my all. And that was for the workouts and the workouts weren't just going to the gym or something. I would start my workout on a Friday afternoon and it would finish Monday morning nonstop. And I would really, you know, you're going without sleep and you're just eating what's in your backpack. And really at least once a month, I got to the point of passing out, uh, bonking, bleeding or hallucinating or a combination of some of those. Yeah, so, but I did that for about 20 something years because I never wanted to leave anything on the table. I want to give everything I had. And so now if anybody wants to be a SEAL, they have to give everything they have and they may or may not make it depending, you know, if they don't get hurt and if they don't give up, they should make it. And, and I'm not, I don't want to say Bud's was easy, but it was easier than I thought it would be because mentally I was ready for it. When we talked the other day, you mentioned this this mindset um that that really helped you in accomplishing all of these extreme 
races. But you also mentioned that it, you took it to so much of an extreme that you you ended up damaging your body. Can can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, Dave. I did that a lot. You, you know, I've I've got like you know I could list the injuries going upward, but um, being a multi-sport athlete, you know, if you you plan a faster, your knees are hurting you badly. You don't run so much. You bike more, and if you have some problem causing you your that causes a lot of pain when you're biking, I paddle more. So yeah, I have done damage to myself. I, I weigh 185 basically. And um, what happens when you go through all your food, all your fats, all your sugars, your glycogen and glucogen is all depleted and your body's about ready to quit, but your mind says, keep going and keep going and keep going. The only thing that has left to burn is muscle. So your muscle starts being eaten up by its, your body and so I've gone from 185 to below 140. And I was skin and bones, it looked like, but as like a racehorse. So the worst time I ever did that, I was stationed at SEAL Team 1. And I was training for the longest triathlon in the world at the time. The first Ironman, uh, the first distance longer than a regular Ironman, which is 2.4, 126.2. 2. And then um, I got below 140. And uh, I got really, really sick and my liver was failing. My kidneys were failing. I had a compressed spine. I had a uh, torn quadricep, torn rotator cuff, but I wasn't taking any time off. And I was working out at least eight hours every day, like hard workouts. And my, I told you what it was like in the mornings, you know, getting up at midnight and then going to Bud's or, or SEAL team. And sometimes in the morning, we'd do our two and a half mile swim. And that morning, I may have done four miles of swimming with a swim coat. And by lunchtime, I'd have six miles of swimming in. If I ran that day, I'd have a 13-mile run in, half marathon I'd do, 13.1 miles of running in. And if we did a six-mile run for PT at SEAL Team, I'd have 19 miles of running in by 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, the, the numbers, because the reason I thought like that, and I don't think like that now, is because back then in the early guys, one of the early people doing that, is you try to do triple the distance. So if you're training to do a 10K run, a 6.2 mile run, you try to have a base of 18 miles a week running. And if you had a base of 18 miles a week for so many months, then you should be able to do that 10K pretty well. If you're training for a marathon, 26.2 miles, you have to have that base of 72 or so miles a week, somewhere 70, 75 miles a week of running. And that takes its toll on you. Now, if you're training for the Ironman, which is 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride and 26.2 mile run, then you also have to swim eight to nine miles a week, bike 400 or so miles a week and run 70 miles a week or so. So I was doing that and being a SEAL and which is active and physically active. And then after the Ironman came about, there was a race longer than the Ironman and it was 3.1 miles of swimming, 156 miles of biking and a 31 mile run. So I increased all my distances to 10 miles a week swimming, um, 450 miles a week riding and 90 miles a week running. And my body started eating from itself. And, it, and that's what was happening. My commanding officer looked at me once, he goes, he called me doc. Doc, where's the rest of your body? I just went down to nothing. But I've done that a couple of times. But that time, I. You know, it almost killed me because my, my organs were given up. 
So I've done that a couple of times. You know, I would never, ever, ever suggest to anybody to push themselves that hard because I have damage now that it's the last my a lifetime. Now I believe there is a line, there's a limit, and it's an imaginary limit, but you have to know where that is. And if you're a banker, you can't work all day, all night, and do all your banking work and cross that line because if you cross the line, damage is going to be done somewhere. If for my case, I was a, a triathlete and a SEAL. So training, I had to have an imaginary line. I always felt that going over that line was the only safe way to know that I was giving it my all. And that's what I meant by bleeding, bonking, hallucinating, or passing out. And if I didn't do that, I didn't think I was giving it my all. Now I really believe I was wrong, but I believe I know the right answer now. And now is to identify where that line is. And if you're a swimmer, go up and push it, push it, push it. But right before you go over the line and something's going to be damaged, like shoulder rotator cuff pain or something, just back off. And if you can back off before going over the line, there's a lot more longevity you're probably going to have. And that could be as a father or a doctor or anything. So for me, getting ready for the 500 and 600 mile adventure races in the Andes or the Himalayas or wherever these races were all over the world. Um, I really, you know, when you're training for a 10 or 11 day race, my training was two and three days. That's why I trained from Friday till Monday without any time off. Because if I'm only training three days nonstop, that's to prepare you for a 10 or 11 day nonstop race. And I would make myself bonk, bleed, hallucinate or pass out. Now I would never ever do that again. I'd go right up to the line of pushing too hard right before going over and backing off. And that's what I believe is the answer for any, any part of life. If you give too much in anything, you're gonna damage other parts of your life. And I was doing a talk and I was with Patterson, the greatest author of all time. Uh, he's the most, uh, I guess, the richest author of all time. He's one of one books than anybody in the world. And we're listening to him speak. He said, you can juggle a lot of balls up in the air at one time. Um, and a lot of them, if they drop, you can pick it up and keep juggling the balls. But if you do that with your family and that ball drops and that's your family, you're letting your family uh, situation drop, that ball can shatter and not come back. And that's always dawned on me because, you know, a lot of seals don't stay married and I didn't stay married. But if I had this attitude back then and not let the family life go in jeopardy and not go over that line, I probably would have stayed married because I just gave everything to being a SEAL or an athlete. And I didn't want to be at home. I never want to be in the house. I didn't want to do any, I never want to go shopping or mow a lawn or anything like that. It all had to be toward being a SEAL or working out. But I think I could have been just as successful in those activities if I had touched line and backed off rather than going over the line. Well, I'm curious, what got you interested in, in doing the adventure races? Cause I mean, that that's, that's extreme. That's really what encouraged me. Well, you know, if, when I, when I was racing motorcycles, a good friend of mine who was a professional, he said, Don, you should start running. If you want to go pro, you should start running. I said, running. He wants to run. I don't want to run. And he said, yeah, if you want to go pro, you got to get your cardiovascular shape uh, and you got to run. And that's what we do. We run. I had no idea what running was about. So we we're teenagers 
And he invited me to his house. And I was so honored and excited about running with a pro motocross racer. He said, I have this loop in my neighborhood. It's a mile long and I do it 10 times. So I run 10 miles and I do this three times a week. I said, Dave, whatever you say, I'll do it. And I was thinking, I, we're both teenagers, skinny little teenagers, long hair. We looked about the same, but there was a big difference in him and I. He was a professional and I was a novice. He was very, very accomplished. And I hadn't done anything in, in life at that time. And we ran one mile and it was hard. It was hard. And I, he wasn't talking. He was everything he had, he was going forward. He's putting all his momentum, all his energy into going forward. And we ran the second mile and it was harder. And I was thinking, I don't like this. And we ran the third mile and I quit. I just quit. I sat on the grass and I'm watching him do all the other seven miles. And while I was watching him, it dawned on me, that's the difference between a pro and a nobody. He knows how to push himself. I felt a little bad for myself. I felt tired a week or so, or whatever my issues were. So I sat down because it was too hard. Well, that day taught me the greatest lesson of my life. He said, he was kind of fed up with me. And he said, Don, I mean, that was pathetic. If you want to become a pro, you better start running. You're not in shape. He said, why don't you pick out a running race and do a running race? And I had no idea they had running races. This was back in the 70s. I said, what do you mean a running race? He said, yeah, they got them. I said, well, when's the next running race? He said, it's in a couple of months. It's in Boston. It's called Boston Marathon. I said, well, how long is it? He said, 26.2 miles. I said, Dave, people don't run 26.2 miles. And he gave me a book and I read it. It was called uh, Boston of Us, the last chapter. I read about all these people who ran Boston Marathon. Some had organ failures, some had prosthetic legs, some were cancer survivors. I was thinking, well, shoot, if all these people can run a marathon, I'm a young guy. I don't have any issues. I should be able to run a marathon. So all I did was promise myself to run without stopping to walk and put one leg in front of the other. That's all I had to do. That's all I did. And that's what I did do. And it hurt a lot. And I finished without stopping a time of 344, which is not a good time really for a marathon runner. And I was thinking, I had no idea what my time would even be. So then I was thinking, I was really sick and hurt for a little bit. It just was a terrible feeling. But then there was another marathon in Canada, like a month later. I thought, maybe I'll go do that and I'll knock 10 minutes off my time. And I got a 3.33. I was thinking, that wasn't bad. Then there was one in Newport, like a month later. I ended up doing 30 marathons in three years. And some were ultras. And I brought my time down to less than 2.50. And I became a good runner just with that attitude. And then when the Hawaii Ironman started up, I was thinking, oh, my God, now there's three sports. There's a swim and a bike and a run. I was so excited. And I went out to Hawaii and I was doing the early Ironmans, which is an incredible, incredible experience, especially back then when it was the, uh, the toughest event in the world. And it was super extreme. And then um, so the Ironmans it took over my life. And then I was thinking, and then I passed the champion the Gordon Haller, he did the first Ironman in 11 hours and 44 minutes. So I had a macro goal to do an Ironman and to do it nonstop like that Boston Marathon. Without, I never stopped in a marathon. You have to run it, you know, the whole thing. I was going to do the Ironman without stopping, but I had the goal to break the champion's time of 11.44. 
And I only got passed once in that race, and that was by the champion. I passed him on the bike, and then he passed me in the marathon. And that's the year I got 38th in the world. And he came up and he hugged me. I was nobody, and he was the champion. He said, thanks so much for pushing me. And he intimidated me so much just knowing he is in the race. But when I was coming up to him and getting ready to pass him on the bike, there's a helicopter following him, filming him. I'm thinking, I can't believe I'm going to pass the champion. I can't believe it. And then I passed him. I said, have a great race, champ. And then he came chasing after me for the rest of the bike race. And then in the marathon, the last four miles is when he caught up to me. And then we were going as hard as we could. I wasn't going to let him pass me. And he passed me right at the end of the finish line. And then he came up and he said, thanks for pushing me. So then what I did, that changed my life, passing the, the champion of the Hawaii Ironman. So then I was thinking, and I did it in 11 hours and 41 minutes. I broke his time by three minutes. And I was thinking, you know, if I can do, and that was before I was a SEAL. And I might even really know how to swim. <laughs> so then I was thinking, well, if I could do one Ironman in less than half a day, 11 hours and 41 minutes, I should be able to do two in one day. So then I went out to do two Ironmans in one day, which is 4.8 miles of swimming, a 224 mile bike ride, and then two marathons. Everything was going fine. My bike, the bike ride hurt my legs quite a bit. The first marathon, you know, it was hard, but then all I had was one, le one marathon left to go. And um, I was thinking, just a marathon left. And at one time in my life, a marathon was a big deal. Now it's just a small part of this race. One more marathon to go. And at mile 32, I remember seeing white stars. And I started dry heaving. And everything was hurting. And um, I started spitting out some bile. And then I passed out on the lawn. When I woke up, there were cyclists riding by and runners. I was wondering, why am I out here sleeping? I don't know why I'm sleeping outside. And then I realized I'm in the double Ironman. I got to get up and finish. I wiped off my mouth, got up and finished the race. And I loved that that happened also because that showed me any time in my life prior to that where I might have felt sorry for myself, thinking this is too hard, this is too painful, I can't do it. I was wrong because if something was too physically challenging and too hard, my body would have given me the, done me the favor. I would have passed out, got up, and I would have been okay. So it was just another good, good lesson I had that lasted a lifetime, of course. Yeah. Your first Ironman, did you, did you compete in that before you joined the Navy? Yeah, before I was a SEAL. I was in the regular Navy, but I wasn't a SEAL yet. I was training to be a SEAL. And that's actually where I met my first SEAL because uh, his name was Chuck Newman, and he got second place in the Ironman that year. And to me, meeting a SEAL who got second in the Ironman, and we're still good friends now, I was so honored to even meet him. When you joined the Navy, you signed up, you went to Corman School, and you mentioned the Marines. Were you attached to the Fleet Marine Corps as a Corman? Yep. Yep. So, Dave, so what, what happened, as you know, um, I went to uh, Great Lakes for boot camp. And I got out of there and then went right to core school right there at Great Lakes. And then, and I took my bud screening test right there at boot camp. They said, well, you have to go to core school first, hospital corpsman A school. I said, okay, from there you can put in for buds. So I went to core school. I took the test in boot camp and I passed it. 
I took the test again in Corman School just to make sure they had my records and I knew I passed it. And I did better in Corman School, just I knew the test better. And then they said when we graduated, you can't go to Bud's. You have to go learn to be a Corman first. They don't want brand new Corman who don't know the job yet. So I said, well, where can I do that? So they sent me to Newport, Rhode Island, which was fine because that's where my family But really, all I did was train and race. The Navy sent me all over the world to race. And um, I was loving it. And I learned to be a corpsman. You know, I was in the ICU, in the emergency room, and medical ward. And so I learned to be a corpsman. And, but everything I did was to be a SEAL. There was nothing else in this Everyone who know, knew me back then, they said, you were so obsessed. All you talk about was SEALs. <laughs> we're all good friends still. But then um, the Navy came out with the directive. Every corpsman in the Navy, you have to sign up in one of two categories, shipboard or Marine Corps. I said, well, I want to be a SEAL. I don't want to do either of those. They said, it doesn't matter. You sign up shipboard or Marine Corps, we give you a four-digit designation. And from there, you can go be a SEAL if you want. But right now, you have to sign up for one of these two categories. So I signed up for the Marine Corps because I didn't want to be on a ship. And then the Marine Corps said, well, we have to send you to five weeks of training at Camp Pendleton in California. I said, I'll do that. I went to Camp Pendleton. Actually, I had 10 days of travel time. I figured I'd ride my bicycle there, but I couldn't make it there in 10 days. <laughs> that would have been a world record, 300 miles a day. But I tried. <laughs> I didn't make it. And then um, so when I went to the field medical school up at Camp Pendleton, and I checked in, the first chance I had, I drove right down to Coronado and talked to the SEAL Master Chief there at SEAL Team One. I said, I really want to be a SEAL. This is what I've been doing. These are the tests I've had. And uh, he said, wow, we don't really get corpsmen in shape like this. You know, we need more corpsmen here. Let me make a call to the detailer for you. And he made a call for me. And what they told him and what they told the Marines at Camp Pendleton that they're sending me to five weeks of school to become a field medical corpsman, a Marine Corps corpsman. And to repay the Marines back and the Navy back for that, I had to serve 13 months with the Marines. I said, I don't wanna be a Marine for 13 months. I wanna to go to Bud's. They said, well, because you're in the Marine designation, you have to pay your dues to the Marines. So I went to Okinawa for 13 months. And that was a blast. All I did was train and race. They knew I wanted to be a SEAL. They sent me all over the world to race. Running races, bike races, and triathlons. Probably the fittest I ever was in my entire life that year. And they all knew I wanted to become a SEAL. And then I got orders to be a SEAL. And I was ready. I was ready as I could be. So it took a little longer than I wanted to. But I mentioned earlier, I did all the visualization and preparation. And, and that helped during those years. And maybe as not, I had the desire, but maybe I didn't have the, maybe I wasn't mature enough maybe to go through a six month training program when I first initially wanted to be a SEAL. But the visualization I think helped out that a lot. You did four years in, in, the, in the regular Navy before going to BUDS. And then you spent the next, what, 17 years attached? Mm -hmm. To, to the SEALs. And what, yeah. what, what teams were you uh, assigned to? Okay, right after BUDS, I went to SEAL Team 1. We graduated December 17th. And I walked across the, or right next door, around the fence to SEAL Team 1. I checked in. 
I said, there's nobody here. Everyone's on Christmas leave. I said, I want to check in. <laughs> so I checked in, uh, spent one tour at SEAL Team 1, and then I applied for SEAL Team 6. But, um, you know, SEAL Team 6, you had to have a certain amount of deployments, a certain amount of time in, be ranked above your peers, be recommended for it. And um, SEAL Team 6 came to do the interviews. And my commanding officer said to the commanding officer at SEAL Team 6, I hope you're not going to take Doc Mann. We need him here. And the commanding officer at SEAL Team 6 said, we could take anybody we want. And boom, they grabbed me and I was gone to SEAL Team 6. So then I went through Green Team, which was, I think, harder than Buds um, in, in some ways. And then um, SEAL Team 6. What, what, is, and then, um, what is Green Team? That's the training, the advanced training you have to do to become a SEAL Team 6 member. It's like buds on steroids. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? I, I don't know if you're able to. Yeah, like that. for instance, buds, you don't do any parachuting. Green team, you do hay-hos, high altitude, high opening jumps. And buds, you just do basic diving, closed circuit, open circuit, mixed gas as you dive into ships and things. And green team, you're doing super advanced diving and training and ship attacks and things. And you're coming in from cigarette boats you're dropping out of the sky with cigarette boats, skydiving after the cigarette boats, coming up to the ships that way. Everything was 10 times more intense. I always wondered why they called buds buds. Basic underwater demolition. I mean, what was basic about this is what I used to think. When I got to green team, I said, now I know why that was basic. Everything in green team was high speed, high, high speed. Buds, you went around with some live ammo and did some shooting and things. But green team, it was all live fire, shooting houses, kill houses. Uh, everything was live fire and dangerous. Everything was dangerous. And it really, I mean, we were the, the pointy edge of the spear, break glass in case of war. Like we were the president's men when they needed something, boom, send SEAL Team 6. And when I got there, there were only a couple of hundred people there. So it wasn't very big and, and not many people even knew about SEAL Team 6, even the SEALs, the regular, the other SEALs. And when I was a SEAL at SEAL Team 1, we just, would, the ones who wanted to be SEAL Team 6 members, we tried so hard to learn more about SEAL Team 6. There was nothing anywhere about SEAL Team 6 that you can find. So here's where I wanted to be, sure. And then from SEAL Team 6, uh, Panama and the drug war was getting big. So I went down there with a handful of guys from SEAL Team 6. And uh, that's where I met Donna, actually. Right. And um, um, that was where all the action was for SEALs those years, 89 to 93. And I went down there and did four years down there and had a, absolutely loved every second of that. And so then I got commissioned as a warrant. The Navy SEALs that were in Panama, was it all... SEAL Team 6, or was there different groups there? Uh, SEAL Team 4 was a big down there as well. SEAL Team 4 and 6. And um, so speaking of Donna, you wrote the foreword in, in her book, Courageously Broken, um, where she talks about her time um, as uh, administrative support for, for the SEALs, and which is how uh, she got so close to to all that you guys did. And um, she writes a little bit about her time. 
uh, with you guys. And um, that's pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, one of the things that I didn't realize how tight the, the seals are with not just members of the team, but also the, uh, the support that you guys receive, um, how you embrace it. Yeah, I mean, the SEAL team wouldn't really even exist if it wasn't for great support. You know, we needed, even, even the support people came in to support us. They were highly vetted. You know, we had to have really, really good people. Our admin people, the people who worked on our boats, who fixed our boats, who packed our parachutes. A lot of those people weren't SEALs. And um, we really needed exceptional people. And you had to trust them too. You really had to trust them. <laughs> One poor guy, uh, he was a special boat unit guy. And the special boat unit guys, they weren't SEALs, but they were boat drivers. And we had all types of boats down there to, to do work along the rivers. You know, we had riverine boats, coastal boats, all types of boats that can come up in the jungle and come up on land and jump out of the boat and go do your missions or ops on the land. And every time I'd see a party or a gathering, I'd see the special boat unit guys and Donna and her crew, and they'd all like have a blast. Everyone's having fun. But when the seals walked in, they kind of sat down and they were quiet, and then the seals were all the action and everything was centered around the seals. I felt bad for these people. And I said to this one guy, I said, hey, why did you sit down and get so quiet and didn't have fun after the seals came in? He said, well, I get a little intimidated around those guys. They're so good at what they do, and they're really exceptional. And I said, well, so are you. I mean, you know that those boats better than any seal does. You know how to operate on the rivers. You know how to work those communications. You know what to do when that motor breaks. You can get us in and out of the water better than anybody can. You're exceptional at what you do. And the only difference is a SEAL has a different job than you have. You're a special boat and we're SEALs. But don't be intimidated by him. So the next night he went to a party and there was a big, big guy, a SEAL. He was loud and boisterous and drunk. And this guy I talked to went up to him, he goes, one officer man said that we're the same as you guys. We just don't have a trident. We're just as good as you. And the guy popped him. <laughs> so he got beat up. <laughs> it wasn't my intent for that to happen. But yeah, I guess. My, yeah, we had really, really good support. And I, I always felt uncomfortable if they thought they were inferior to SEALs. They just had a different job. And we couldn't do our job without really good people like that. As a warrant officer in the SEALs, how is that, how is that role different than, say, you know, a chief petty officer or you know, a, a, a lieutenant or lieutenant commander? It, you know, if you ask me that before becoming a warrant, I probably wouldn't have as strong of an answer. But becoming a warrant and being a warrant for, I guess, uh, five years, and then retiring as a warrant, it changed overnight. The difference was amazing because I was a senior chief in E8 up for E9. And I made it fast, I made it E8 in 12 years. And um, when I put on warrant, I was getting ready to go up for E9. So I could have been a master chief or a W2, basically, within the next, in the same 24 month period. And um, 
a master chief, in my opinion, is the backbone of the Navy. I mean, they know everything. Everybody respects a master chief. Um, an officer, an ensign, a lieutenant JG, a lieutenant, you know, they're brand new, basically. A lieutenant commander knows what's going on. And then beyond that, of course, they're, if they don't go desk bound, they, they know what's going on. But when you go and you go up the enlisted ranks, E1 through what I did, E8, and then go to warrant, the commanding officer treats you totally different. Like, <clears throat> excuse me, what do you think? What do you want to do on this? And he talks to you as a warrant. He talks to fellow warrants almost with more respect than, well, definitely more respect than enlisted and much more respect than junior officers. And because they know you've been there and done that, but you've proven yourself to be in the officer ranks. And so the respect um, a warrant officer gets, is, it's much different than even senior enlisted with the exception of a master chief. I'd say a master chief gets the same, but the, the officers treat a warrant officer almost higher than where they are in the chain of command. And they really don't do anything without the warrant officer's approval or advice or recommendations. So, and it's really funny. One day you're enlisted, one day you're a warrant officer, but they think you know more. You know, <laughs> you really don't, but uh, <laughs> uh, that's what they think. So it, it was it was nice. You go to the officer parties and all that, and you can still go to the enlisted parties, and you're right in the middle. It was the best of both worlds. And when you're uh, attached to a team, do you? Do you go on operations or are you more um, like in a command position? Um, okay, so that's where it gets really vague. When warrant officers first started in the SEAL teams, that's when I told you as an E8, I was thinking, what am I gonna do as a warrant officer? Because right back then, it was mainly you can become a training officer. But as an E8 SEAL corpsman up for E9, there are only two jobs in the SEAL team at that time for E9 SEAL corpsmen. One was running a medical center at Spec War Group 1, and one Spec War Group 2. And I certainly didn't want to run a medical center. So then the option was, because I was, I was up for E9, and you could take a, a billet that's not assigned to an E9 corpsman, but you're just tossing the dice what that might be, you know. But if you're a warrant officer, pretty much back then when I when I did it, uh, you were going to be a training officer and involved in mission planning and operations. But you weren't any longer considered an operator, someone who trained and went on every mission. You were probably you're not kicking down a door, but you might be outside, a, you know, almost a supporting element, a planner, a planner, too. And it's, I hate to say support because you're very much involved in the mission but it's the guys in the assault teams who are doing all the, the missions. So it changed in that part. So really, if you, at those times, when you go up the ranks kind of fast, you can almost uh, go up the ranks and knock yourself out of an operational um, position, which is what happens to a regular officer too. After their lieutenant commander, they're pretty much, most times, desk-bound. And that's what happens. It could happen to a warrant too. And it also could happen to a master chief. You could become desk-bound. SEAL Team 6 is a little bit different because there are a lot of master chiefs there because the enlisted guys there are very senior and they're still very operational. So SEAL Team 6 is a little bit different. But for the most part, a warrant officer is not the door kicker anymore. 
he's, he's the guy who's there and he might train people what to do and what not to do. He might help plan the missions, but the door kickers are the younger guys at that point. What, what's the most memorable moment that you have or uh, memorable time frame uh, in, in, the, in the special operations community and special warfare community or in, you know, attached to the SEALs? The most special, um, as far as a mission maybe goes, something like that maybe. Yeah, yeah. And put on another. Okay. So um, when I was first got in, I was very excited about getting on any mission I could possibly get on, like anything that was happening, any certain thing. Um, they picked four of us from SEAL Team 1 to do this mission. And um, we went out to Egypt and it was highly classified. You know, the rest of the SEAL team didn't even know we we're doing it. It was highly classified. We were with the Egyptian counterparts and uh, they were eating snakes and frogs and poisonous snakes. And, and we did that with them. And the four of us got food poisoning. And then we had to uh, go down in a war zone and um, parachute into the water, shark infested water, four of us crawl into a rubber boat that we parachuted in. And then we took the boat to shore and buried ourselves in a hole for three days. What we're trying to do is look over at the airport and all the air traffic coming in and going and looking at the shipyard, all the boats and traffic coming and going. And we're in a hole buried for three days. We had camouflage netting over our heads and we were thrown up. We had diarrhea, we're urinating in the hole because you couldn't leave the hole. And at high tide, the hole filled with uh, water. We're up to our necks in our own sewage for three days. And it was, it was um, as sick as can be. You know, we're still doing the job. Um, the third day, uh, a guy, all these Middle Eastern clothing blowing in the wind. He is walking up. And we had that desert camouflage netting over our heads. And his eyes got wider and wider and wider as he saw four guys sitting in a hole with weapons, long hair and goggles on. His eyes got really big and he backed off and he went and got 14 of his buddies and they captured us before we can get out of there. And um, they said they were going to shoot us in the backs. And we said, no, we're going to get back on our rubber boat that was in the hole next to us and we're going home. Said, no, we shoot you in the backs. We shoot you in the backs. They held us at gunpoint overnight and um, they let us go in the morning. I don't know why they let us go. They let us go. And we came around as sick as could be and finished the mission. We won and they lost. And what I love so much about that is nobody ever complained. Nobody said, this is too hard. Nobody said, oh, I should have been a pilot. I should have been something else. All four of us were there because that's what we wanted to be there doing. And uh, so that was, I think, my most memorable time. There were a lot of good times. I mean, a lot of, a lot of good times, but that's my most memorable. Uh, one of the guys, Danny, they put four guns up to his head because he went to go get a get out of jail free card. We thought he was going to get shot. We went out to sea as sick as can be and came back the next night and finished the mission. Wow. But, now, since you've retired, you've, you've continued to compete. You've written multiple books, New York Times bestseller. Did you write a lot when you were in the SEALs? Is, uh, 
you know, becoming an author, something that you had, had wanted to do, or is it just something that? Absolutely not. I mean, I barely made it out of high school English. Um, I didn't like writing. I didn't ever, ever even imagine I'd be a writer. But when I got out, Navy Times asked me if I'd write a, I'd write a story on working out. And then I ended up doing three or four stories for Navy Times and Air Force Times and Army Times. And then I was thinking, that, but I spent so much time just doing a little short story on working out. And then um, I was thinking, you know, I guess that wasn't so bad. It took me a lot, lot longer than a good writer would have taken. And then I was putting on all these adventure races. I was racing and I ran an adventure racing academy, which I started. And a politician, his name's Quinton Kidd, Virginia politician, came up to me, said, Don, you know, you race at the highest levels. You teach people a race at this Odyssey Adventure Racing Academy and you produce races. You put, produce more adventure races than anybody in the world. Why don't you write a book on adventure racing? I said, I don't want to write a book. He said, come on, you should write a book. Someone's going to do it. Nobody should do it if it's not you. I said, Quentin, I don't want to write a book. I don't want to be behind the computer. He said, I'll get someone to type it up if you can give me your book on cassette. So I had three by five cards every day. I knew the topic I was going to talk about, and I would talk on cassette. And I have it up here on the wall, but uh, Cara Shard, the uh, New York Times, uh, actually Chicago Sun-Times, she was a writer for them. She typed it all up. First book of adventure racing, we finished. That was it. It wasn't that hard. And then I went to work for the government teaching weapons and tactics. And my boss came up to me and I had a lot of material that I put together. I was, I was teaching SEALs this stuff and teaching the government people and teaching people all over the world, weapons and tactics for our government. And this guy, Jimmy said, Don, you got all this material. You should write a book on shooting. I said, Jimmy, I don't want to write a book. He said, come on, who has more material than this? My desk was filled with material. And then another guy came in, he said, yeah, just put it in chapters. So about a year later, I said, okay. I submitted it to Sky Horse. They go, this is great, but there's way too much. Can you give us about a third of this? So I get rid of all the shotgun and all the long gun, and I just did defensive pistol. And so that, that's a, a book, it's called Modern Day Gunslinger, and cops use it all the time, so does law enforcement. I was very proud of that book too. And then, um, so now I had two books, which I sh shocked me that I'd write two books. And then when Osama bin Laden was taken out by SEAL Team 6, I was asked to write another book. My name was out there from doing these books and being an athlete. I said, no, I mean, the things that we do at 6, you can't talk about them. And I have a clearance still, I can't talk about it. They said, well, you're turning down a lot of money. I said, I don't have an option. I can't talk about those things. And so another publisher called, he said, here's more money than the first publisher. Tell us how you guys train. I said, I can't talk about those things. I really can't. And my publicist is getting so upset that I'm turning down all this money. And then she had a third publisher call me uh, from Little Brown. He said, yeah, we know what you're telling the other people, but if you just give us your sports bio, and your athletic bio and your military bio would like to write a book and we're gonna give you a lot of money. I said, I can't, I really can't. They said, no, anything you think's classified, leave out. 
anything that you don't feel comfortable with, leave out. I said, I'm not trying to sound like a humble guy or anything, but um, my sports background is not that impressive. There's a lot of people who've done more than I have. And my SEAL background is not impressive because the SEALs nowadays have done way more than we did in my time. They said, we know you'd say that, but we would like that if you can get that to us. So I did. They needed a title for it. And they said, what do you want for a title? I gave them eight or nine different ideas. They said, no, we don't like any of those ideas. What about inside SEAL Team 6? I said, that's not what the book's about. They said, we don't care. I said, no, I don't think so. They said, yeah, that's what we want. And I had to think about that. I said, I don't want somebody walking by a bookstore and seeing inside SEAL Team 6 thinking I'm giving away secrets. So the book went to the publication review board where they review it for any secrets and went to SEAL Team, the Commodore, and they approved it. So I was okay with it being out there. And that's the one that became the New York Times bestseller. So then the Navy called, hey, we don't have a Navy SEAL survival manual. We know you're a survival instructor. The Army's got one, the Coast Guard has one, the Marines have one, and you write a book on survival. I said, I don't want to write a book on survival. I would have to do so much research. I just don't want to write another book. They said, well, pay up front. You've got an extra year to get it done. I said, okay. <laughs> so I did that. And that's how they all happened, you know? And then um, I was thinking of the movie Forrest Gump, and I just lost my mother. And uh, she and I both liked that movie a lot. And I was thinking that was a fictional character giving us a history lesson from Vietnam and Watergate and Kennedy and Nixon and the Chinese ping pong and Jenny, his girlfriend, dying of the virus, which was AIDS, and um, the hippies and all that. I was thinking, you know, if I wanted to, and if I was a lot better writer than I am, I could probably do a story with a current seal going through real world things or something like real world, something very real world-like. So I called a, the, the writer of the TV show Murder, She Wrote. It was a big TV show, Murder, She Wrote. And I called this guy, and his name was Tom. I said, Tom, I have a book idea. What do you think? He said, I love that idea. Let me hook you up with a buddy of mine. I'm too busy with this TV show. Let me hook you up with a buddy of mine. So Ralph Pizzullo, um, out in Hollywood, he dated Madonna. He's got a fantastic career and a very colorful life. He said, Don, I'd love to do this with you. Can I come out to Virginia and come meet with you? So we did a book, and it was fiction. And then the publisher liked it. They asked for another one. So we did six of those. We did six of those. I almost said eight. Nope, it's eight. Sorry about that. We did eight of those fiction books, all different countries. We had a blast. It was fiction, but all based on fact. So, so that was pretty much it. And then there's the talks. My favorite book, really, that I did was the talks that I do around the country. It's called Reaching Beyond Boundaries. I always wanted to put that in a book. And I uh, made a book out of that as well. And then that, that had three sub books with it. And they're just little books. One's overcoming obstacles. One's uh, facing your fears. And the other one's choosing your battles. And they're just like sub chapters to reaching beyond boundaries. So that's 20. Well, actually, that's 18. And then I wanted to spread out the category. And I wanted to still say in the SEAL, in the shooting world. So I went out to Women Warriors you know, and went through history. So some tough, tough women warriors. And I also wanted to do a book on piracy. 
I did a book on piracy, and those two haven't been published yet. Those are at the publishers right now. Can you talk about the the women warriors for a second? Yeah, sure. You know, do you remember Carlos Hathcock's stories, Marine Corps sniper? He was he was one of the greatest snipers we ever had in the Marine Corps. He used to be a sniper instructor for us at SEAL Team Six too. And this guy has a book called "93 Confirmed Kills." It was the best book I ever read in my life. I I put it down, I read it in 1990, and I can tell you this 30 years later, I only read it one time, I could tell you all about that book, chapter for chapter almost. I mean, it was riveting. This guy was incredible. But the toughest enemy he went against was a female sniper called the Apache Lady. And he went head to head with her, and she killed so many Americans. And then when I was writing on piracy, one of the top pirates in the entire world was a woman. And now we have fighter pilots and some of the best fighter pilots we have are women. The Russians had over 2000 uh, Soviet snipers who were trained who are women. And so I didn't think women were getting enough. I, this may not be what people want to hear. Some people, we don't have a place in SEAL team for women, you know? I mean, if a woman tried to, and there are women who are trying to be SEALs. I trained with the toughest woman on the planet. I don't know any woman on this planet who could be a SEAL, unless they really reduce the standards. I, I don't know one woman in the world who could pick you up over the shoulder if you're wounded and, and carry you to safety in a battle, in a firefight. I know women who can paddle and I know women who can do some pull-ups and some push-ups. I don't know, I know women who can shoot and some of the best shots in the world are women. You know, the Camp Perry Nationals in Ohio, uh, I had a friend who was a world-class, world champion sniper, and he was always third in the world behind two women. So women can shoot, they can dive, they can jump, they can do all that like men. But how do you, how do you save your buddy if he's shot? How do you get him off the battlefield? How do you sit in a foxhole or in a hole for four days with three guys? three horny guys, you know, it just doesn't happen. You know, it just doesn't make sense. You'll have to change the whole SEAL community to get the couple of women who might make it through BUDS if they have some modifications done to their training, then possibly they might be able to do some missions at the expense of changing around the whole community. But, you know, there are women who made it through Ranger School and there's some women who made it through Ranger School and I'm sure they have the same issues. Now, not to say I think women are sometimes in the adventure racing world tougher than most men, but they're not off battlefield, carry them on the shoulders and run them to safety. They don't have that strength, that power. So, so anyways, women warriors, I think there's a lot to it. And that's why I wanted to write on it. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I've written about women in the fire service and I just was curious. Well, I think we're yeah. on the same page. Um, okay. Now, can you tell me a little bit about your, your philosophy on leadership in general and also leading in high stress environments? Mm -hmm. um, when, I, when, when I'm asked anything about leadership, my mind reverts right back to the SEALs, looking at some of the best leaders I ever worked under and hopefully learn some lessons from those people. And the greatest leaders that I look up to 
that I consider powerful, great, influential leaders are the ones who did everything for the team. They did everything for their team. If something went wrong, they took the blame as long as the team had the integrity, were doing everything they could. If something went right, that all the praise and the credit went to the team. If there was a mission that had to be done and, and the commander, I'll give you an example, Commander Koenig, um, we have sea daddies in the SEAL teams. I'm sure you've heard of sea daddies, somebody really, really look up to. Well, he's a guy I looked up to more than anybody. And he, he was a, a commander in 05. And he was, I think, the toughest guy on SEAL team at the time. And uh, he was on the phone down there in Panama. And the admiral was yelling at him, said, Johnny, you are the acting XO. You are not to go out on missions with these guys. Let them go out on the missions. Patrol boat was backing off the pier, getting ready to go down and do a mission. And Johnny said, Admiral, I'm not letting my men go without me. When they go in harm's way, I'm going to be there with them. He hung up the phone, ran down the pier, jumped off the pier, and swam to the patrol boat, and they stopped to pick him up. And that was a leader. You know, that guy was as tough as nails. And if somebody got in trouble with that guy, you'd rather just go jump off a bridge. You know, you're, you're done, you know, but... People, he was so influential. People used to carry the, his picture in the notebooks and things they carried around. He was hardcore. He, he, he trusted you and liked you if you were all for the mission. If you did anything wrong, you knew you were not going to survive that. He, and uh, so Pete, who was a commanding officer at SEAL Team 6, another guy, he, he hurt his leg on a jump. He broke it real badly. He kept missing work because of all his doctor's appointments. He decided to have his leg amputated. He went on and became the commanding officer at SEAL Team 6 during the Bin Laden raid. That guy, everybody loved him because he was 100% for the team, as fair as could be, never took credit for anything, always gave the credit to the younger guys, everyone in the team. And anytime we got in trouble for something, you know, if a mission went wrong or something, he absorbed all the heat. And every, every leader I look up to had those characteristics. They're quiet, they're humble, they did everything for their team. They weren't interested in getting promoted and staying around the flagpole and being all politically correct or anything. They were all for the team and the team guys. And when that was wrecking, sometimes if they went overboard, they were too much for the team guys, they were criticized by the higher ups, the admirals and the generals. But if they can walk that balance and be all for the teammates, everything for the mission, and serve the needs of those above them without us knowing all the bull they had to put, put up with, I mean, those were the best leaders we had. I wish we would see some of that leadership in D.C. I agree. I think most of the world would agree. <laughs> um, so it's, now, I don't see that ever, actually. Yeah. I mean... Every now and then you'll see maybe a congressman or a senator who's got backbone and you believe in them, but it's rare. Yeah. Well, have you thought about going into politics? <laughs> a couple of times I've been asked about that, but um, I, I don't think I would do so well. Um, I think they'd do a background check on me and say, oh my God, what's this guy been up to, you know? <laughs> I don't know about that, but um, I do, I'm a, I'm a conservative. Um, I love our country the way it used to be. 
And I'm totally, totally more than against seeing our cities being burnt down and, and um, seeing um, this country changing so radically, so quickly to a country that I'm, my parents want to recognize now. And I don't, I don't know how it's going to turn around. I mean, I wish we had enough, I wish we had about 15 Ronald Reagans coming to the rescue. And, um, you know, people with the integrity of like a George Bush, but people with that background and the integrity and people who are so well respected and aren't shady and don't have those corrupt backgrounds like we've been getting so often. And now, you know, I know President Trump wanted to enter, empty the swamp and I know he did a lot of that. And I know that's kind of the reason he got pushed out like he did. Um, but I think that swamp is still filled with swamp creatures that are destroying our country. And I don't believe they should be in politics or in power at all, those people. I mean, I'll say it even more from the heart. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the VC, the Germans, the Japanese, all of the enemies our country has dealt with, in my opinion, the enemy within our country trying to destroy it from within is doing more harm to our country than anybody else has. And I'm dead against it. And I'll, I'll voice that anywhere. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very disappointed with lack of the, the leadership that we don't have um, or that's not being allowed to, to exist, basically. Can you talk a little bit about how your leadership philosophy has been shaped through your experiences and maybe talk about um, maybe some of your leadership blunders, if you will, um, if you actually have any, but. Uh... Oh, I do, I do. <laughs> I mean, there, there are times I think back thinking, why couldn't I make this work? Why couldn't this happen? Um, why did this have to, go sideways where it could. And I've never come up with an answer why. The times where I thought, my God, this is going so well. I mean, what a team. I don't even know what the difference is to tell you the truth. I've, I feel like I've done poorly as a leader at times. And I feel like I've been very successful as a leader at times. And in, in all cases, I felt my heart was in everything we were doing. And I don't really have a reason why it sometimes went really well and sometimes not as well. I've seen that with other leaders as well. We had a leader actually at the team, at Team Six. He's an outstanding officer, went on to become a commanding officer. Super, super guy. And this is a story that's not really told too often. So I won't say his name, but he came into our team, our 30 man assault team. And I can't say why the guys wouldn't accept him. He wasn't accepted. They wouldn't talk to him for two years. He was our leader. They, when he would come and talk, they put their backs to him. And I welcomed him to the team. And when he left the team, I said goodbye. And when he said in his goodbye speech, he said, I had one person in this team talk to me. I don't know where a person like that went wrong. You know, he had us doing some ranger tactics instead of small unit tactics. That's the only thing I know of. We had another, another officer come in after that, definitely rejected, who went on to become a great admiral, a great admiral who worked under uh, General Flynn. I don't know, those are two leadership examples that did not work. I've never seen leadership 
fail as much as it did with those two leaders. I've seen other leaders walk in and we would, the saying goes, would follow them through the gates of hell. We'll do anything for those people. Those two I just told you about, for some reason they didn't, they were missing something and they didn't have that characteristic. The others that I look up to did. And I don't really know what the difference is. I really don't know what the difference is between them. And I don't know the difference, what happened when I chose to do a leadership role or I got put in a leadership role and it worked really, really well and other times not as well. I really don't know why. I don't know. But I have to tell you, the times it worked really well. I think about it all the time with great, great pride and memories. The times it didn't, it still bothers me. Like, I wonder why it didn't work. It still bothers me. No, but I, I don't really have any answer what the difference was. The The name of the podcast is, is From Members to Excellence. And part of what I talk about and, and talk to uh, guests about is lessons learned. Um, you know, those those leadership lessons where we essentially fail to accomplish our goals or fail to, to lead effectively, whether it be lead a team or, you know, really self-leadership. And through those experiences, the you can learn a lot about yourself, about your ability ability to endure hardship. Um, learn about how strong you are, uh, your level of perseverance, um, but also whatever lesson learned in that experience, taking that, making yourself better and using it to add value to others. And I was wondering if, you have any examples that tie into that? I do. You know, there was a, a person I went through buds with. He was our class leader. His name was Jim. And he was good. He was squared away. If you looked at all the uniforms, he had the most squared away uniform. In his case, if you looked at all the swim times, he had the fastest swim time. If you looked at all the run times, he had one of the fastest run times. If you looked at the shooting scores, he had some of the top shooting scores. His leadership uh, style was friendly with the guys, but not overly friendly where mission was first. This is what we need to do. And I'm going to do every bit with you. And I'm going to suffer with it through it all as much as you will. Uh, when you went to work in the morning, if you had to be there at 4.30, he was there at 3.30 in the morning. When you left work, if it was seven or eight at night, he was there till nine or 10. When I went over his house, he was working. When he went over his house late at night, he was working. He, he everything to do with him was seals. Um, there was one time when he was working at JSOC where they found him passed out on his desk. He had worked himself that hard. Everything he touched, he made better than before he got there. He left the SEAL teams because he was a little frustrated with the, um, with the fact that not everybody was like that. And he was a big overachiever, 
we all would have done anything for that man. We did. I've worked for him a number of times. Um, I think it starts off with you knew he was given more than you were. He was trying harder than you were. And he would do anything even more so than we were. And that's the feeling we got with him. When you went up to, he became the XO, the executive officer at Sale Team 6. When you went to his office, you knew if you had 20 minutes with him, it had to be efficient time. It had time effectiveness, had to be right to the point because he was so, so busy doing 50 other things before you got there and maybe 100 after you leave. And when you left that office, you go, man, we're glad to have him on our side. And when they're leaders like that, leaders who give it your all and as much as you feel you're doing, when you see people who you know you're doing, they're doing more than you, uh, that, that always struck me as that's a leader. And there's managers and leaders, of course, but leaders are people who you would follow anywhere. Managers are something, okay, what's our schedule? Pretty much, I, I don't even put them in the same category. But the leadership um, is basically as much as you think you're doing and as much as you think you're sacrificing, as much as however good you think you're doing of, of a job, they're doing more and better. And if and they're doing it for you too. They're doing it for the team members. I think that's an exceptional leader. And those people that I look up to, they all had that, that characteristic as well. We also had leaders that would come in, okay, you guys gotta be, you gotta dive at seven in the morning. Um, you got to dive at 11 in the morning. I won't make either dive because I'm going to go do a, a triathlon. I mean, those leaders, they, they get bad things that happen to them. And um, they, don't, they don't last in a team. I mean, they're afraid to leave their dive rig or their parachute gear unattended because they think one of us is going to do something to it. And when you have a leader that's not there, he's only there partially there, and he's there for his own accord, and he's there to be a SEAL commander or whatever, and he's not there for you 100% of the time, I mean, those leaders get in trouble. I mean, they don't last. The, 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 get, the teammates will get rid of them. You can't be a poor leader in SEAL team. You can have an exceptional leader and good leaders, but not a poor leader or bad leader. What advice would you give to... Uh, aspiring soldiers, sailors, Marines, um, current soldiers, sailors, and Marines looking to promote and uh, like non-commissioned officers who want to be better leaders? Well, the one thing is there have been some great leaders in our country, some great generals, some great admirals, some great leaders in their own units. They'll find them as well. And to look at what you respect in them and what you can learn from them and take that, you know, you don't have to create the wheel. The wheel's been created. And you can follow examples of great leaders. And I think a good piece of advice would be always think that you're being looked at, no matter what you do. You go out to your car, you go out running in the park, always think that people are watching you and would you want to be observed doing what you're doing? In other words, like if, uh, if you're working out, are you just gonna hang out and do a little bit in the workout gym and just to be in the gym? Or are you gonna push it really hard? When you go talking to anybody, if you were recorded, would you be proud of how you're handling the situation? 
if you're doing any task at your desk, are you going to do it quickly or are you going to take your time? You're going to make the phone calls needed to get all the information. If you're going on a mission, you're packing all your gear. Are you going to throw all your bag in your kit bags? Are you just going to take these old magazines and throw them in there? Are you going to take these everything clean and meticulously organized 28 rounds in each magazine, not 30 because the springs have too much tension on it. You get your weapon, it's glistening. Your parachute, you just packed it. Your dive gear is immaculate. You go up all your uniforms, your desert gear, your, your river gear, your, your jungle gear is all immaculate because you spent those extra hours preparing for it. Other guys may have just done a little bit of that and gone home to go have a beer or whatever. Those, that's not leadership. The leadership is doing everything to excellence and you're going to fail at times, but people who might see you fail is not because of your integrity or your lack of effort is because, you know, it happens. Um, and then those guys will be at your back helping you out because things just don't always go right. But if you go to somebody's cage and you see all their equipment and you see all the planning they're doing, you see all the, extra time and effort they put into something compared to the vast majority of the teammates. I mean, they'll respect that leader because they know that he's doing it to make the mission better, to put more planning effort into the plan that's going to keep everybody safe. And also that he gives out responsibility. He's giving out the responsibility where, you know, we've had leaders and I've been in leadership positions where I try to do everything myself. That just doesn't work. You have to say, hey, Steve, you're the best guy we have in the air. Why don't you come up with a plan? How are we going to jump in? How we, what's the plan on getting the shoots in? What's the plan on jumping in? How far can we get from radar? How are we going to jump out doing a hey-ho, say we're going to do a 28,000-foot hey-ho? How many men do we need um, to fit on one bird if we're going to have just two boats? And you guys, you guys are jungle experts. Where are we going to land? Where are we going to get water? You guys take care of the jungle side. And if you guys here, the CQB experts, you guys have done more close quarters battle. You've done more room entries. You've done dealt more with hostages. You guys take actions at the objective. And I need to see all your preliminary plans in two hours. They get together, then they put together the warning order. This is what's going to happen. And the officer in charge, he can't be better than everybody at everything. But he has to let the jungle expert, okay, what are we going to do in the jungle? But he can have the questions. Well, what about the black palm on those trees? What about the poisonous frogs? What about the, um, you know, Doseki snakes? We have to be concerned. What happens if somebody gets bit? He'll know what questions to ask. And the hey-ho, okay, 28,000 feet, every time we go up that high, we have one or two problems up there. If we have one or two issues, what are we going to do with those guys if they have to pull reserves? What are we going to do? What's the emergency action plan? And if we're going to take the boats, if we're going to skydive with the boats, if we're going to do a, a boat jump, what happens if the winds are really high? We lost four guys in Granada. We got bad winds. What happens if we get bad winds again? What happens if one boat does alarm dart and just goes into the ocean and we never see that boat? Can we all get everybody else on the remaining boats? And a good officer will know what questions to ask, but a good officer or a good leader will know he's not going to be as good as the others putting that part, those parts of the plans together. And he entrusts those people who are working under him. And he gives those people a great sense of pride because they think to themselves, 
wow, we're putting together this part of the mission. This is so cool. I'm going to give it everything I have. And then that sense of excellence is pretty much contagious and, and people get it and they catch on to it. So I, I got to have every answer question. And if you have someone there looking at every piece of the plan and questions every bit of it, and they don't have the answer, they don't want to be in that position ever. And if they do their homework, they won't be. The, what they want to do is be able to have every, every um, concern answered before it's asked. And that's a good mission. That's a good mission. Hey, we can't have Mike going on this mission. Um, you know, he's suffering back pain here. He can't do a jump. But what he can do is he can be on the boats and he can meet us in the boats. And all of that, so much has to be figured out like that. And that's a team. And especially if that's a team who's been doing that type of work and mission planning for four years together, all basically the same guys, it's the best team you're going to have. I wanted to mention or actually ask you about the uh, Neptune, your, your active wear. Um, mm -hmm. can, can you talk a, a little bit about that? Yep. I have a weak spot for kids, like kids who have born with handicaps and and children, you know, in wheelchairs and things like that. It's a real, something I always wanted to help out as kids, you know, St. Jude's and people like that. And then, but also I have the same, my heart goes out to wounded warriors. Here I am, I'm fine after, you know, all these years in the military. And now I'm out climbing Everest and doing things like that. I'm just very fortunate. Other guys I know who've been in for two years and get shot and they're wounded or in a wheelchair forever. So I feel very, very passionate for those who are wounded, those who've been killed, of course, their families, and for children. And I got a call from SEAL Kids, a Navy foundation, uh, to help kids whose fathers have been killed in training or in war. And I was thinking, you know, I always wanted to help kids. And I, of course, I want to help SEAL families. So this is perfect. So I'm trying to get more attention or bring SEAL kids more to the limelight and by promoting them as best I can. At the same time, uh, a company, a, co a small company asked me if I would help out design an athletic wear. And, and we call it Neptune Athletics. And we, we're, we're promoting Neptune Athletics with SEAL kids. There's a third part to this, not to be too confusing with your answer, but because of the COVID virus going around, uh, people aren't racing or doing adventures like they used to. I'm putting together a 500 event, 50 state, 10 events in each state. So for instance, if you're in Virginia, one of the events will be to climb Mount Rogers. One might be paddling the Chesapeake Bay. One might be hiking the Appalachian Trail for so long but 10 unique to adventures in Virginia. The same in Maine, the same in Rhode Island, same in California, same in South Dakota. So 10 events in all 50 states, 500 events. I don't wanna make a penny doing this. I want to put together America's largest virtual adventure series. And that would be 500 events. And say, for instance, you sign up and you're South Carolina, you do those 10 events. You have one year to do all 10 events. It's not that hard. Every event takes two to three hours. But if you're not very athletic and you want to do five of those in one year, you do it with a partner. You have a two-person team. If you're totally non-athletic, but you want to try out this, you take your office of 10 people, 
and I'll do one event in a whole year. Or on the other side of the extreme scale, if you want to really do it hard and extreme, do all 10 events in less than 10 days. So it's an America's Virtual Adventure Series. I don't want any cost at all. It's going to be all volunteers putting this together. But when you scroll through all the pages and you go through all the scrolling of the pages that pops up, Neptune Athletic Wear sponsors the event. Click here to learn more about SEAL Kids. Click here to donate to SEAL Kids. And so the clothing is going to be sponsored, sponsoring the event. And the event is going to come out next year. And it's going to be free, but it's going to be a platform to promote SEAL Kids. And this is a clothing line that's sponsoring it as well. So it's kind of a tri triangular effect. The events, the clothing line to promote the SEAL Kids. You say triangular, but maybe you could use the word trident. <laughs> yeah, you sure could. Yep, SEAL Kids has a trident in it. Um, Neptune is King Neptune from the water. Right. And then the event series is, yeah, you're right, you could. That's good. <laughs> Are you involved in any other uh, nonprofits or fundraising? Um, St. Jude's, I give to St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Uh, Seal Kids is what I'm doing now. Frogman Charities is we put on a series of events. We went on Fox News and, and a bunch of things trying to get raise promotion for the Seal community. But right now, everything I'm doing is for Seal Kids. And all of that information including your, your public speaking events and, and courses that you have, uh, all of that's on your website, uh, usfrogman.com? Yeah. US Frogman, my last name. Yeah, that's it, yeah. usfrogman.com. I was wondering if uh, you have any, any parting thoughts or parting advice for um, aspiring leaders or just... Uh, individuals that are in leadership positions now that want to be better and, and you've you've touched on it I would say I'm, I'm searching for the words I apologize um, advice just for that's applicable to anyone in any um, leadership position or even advice to to women because um, one of the things that I've written about is women in the fire service and um, you know, there's a component to leadership that uh, emotional intelligence. There, there's several factors that uh, are applicable to one uh, uh, an individual's emotional intelligence uh, score, or whatever quotient, and a couple of those components are empathy and communication skills. And most women that I know are far better at communicating and far better at empathizing than me and most of the men I know. Um, now, men rate, rate higher in other aspects of that emotional intelligence spectrum, but I feel that when you have a, uh, a, diverse, um, a diverse organization where you have men and women, 
and you're leading both. What women can bring to the to the leadership component in that organization, I think, is uh, lessons on how better to communicate and how how empathizing is beneficial to building those relationships. And I, I was wondering if you have any experience on that or uh, can, can talk about that at all. I agree with you. I do believe, I'll put that myself in that category too, although I can communicate through a speech or a book, sometimes like in a relationship, I'm a poor communicator. I just assume they know what I'm thinking and, and uh, they say, what, what do you mean? You, didn't, you never told me that. I said, well, I just assumed you. I, I don't feel like day to day I'm a good communicator. And I think women are much, much better at it. And I think women are much better at a lot of things than men, actually. And, um, and, and so I think a woman who's in a leadership position, I had a woman in, in the government in a very, very stressful government position during the war. And she was in charge of all of us. We we're all former soft special operation forces. And she was our leader. We're thinking, how is she going to lead this? She's one of the best leaders I ever had in my life. She was so good. She cared about everybody. She could communicate with us all. And I just saw her. I bumped into her at an airport skiing a couple of weeks ago. It was so good to see her. She's one of the greatest leaders I ever had. Seals, everybody. And, um, and what she would do, she'd come to the table and said, hey, guys, I don't know how you do what you do. I could never do that. I'm not good at that stuff. But I would like to show, share with you what I've been doing to prepare for your, your missions overseas. We respected her and liked her so much. Um, so that's one part of that. The other part is a lot of times I do get asked, uh, how do you become a SEAL? What's your best advice? A pilot? What's your best advice to prepare for somebody for some physical job, man or woman? And I, it took me years to narrow this down. Speaking of communication, it took me a long time to communicate this effectively. But what I did come up with, I think, works real well. And that's just four things you have to do. Every day, because I get calls all the time, how do you become a SEAL? They want a whole workout plan on a platter. They want the books to read on a platter. I said, if you need all that, you shouldn't go to SEAL team. You're not going to work out well. You've got to figure it out. But the four things I think they should do is every day get up and do something to make you stronger. If you're a firefighter, if you're a police officer, if you wanna be a SEAL, if you are a SEAL, but every day do something to make you stronger. That might be going to CrossFit, that might be going to Orange Theory, that might be saying, okay, I'm doing a thousand push-ups today. That might say I'm doing a hundred pull-ups today. But every, you figure out what it is, but every day do something to make you stronger. And every day do something to make you faster. It could be wind sprints, it could be hitting the bag more times in a minute, it could be doing sit-ups faster than ever, it could be swimming your laps faster, but it somehow make yourself faster every day, every day. And then every day do something to make yourself smarter. Whatever field you're going into, whatever field you're in, if it seals, learn what's going on in the history of our country with special operation forces. Where have they been and what have they done? What is their training like? If I wanna go in spec ops, I better go learn to shoot. I'm going to go learn to shoot on my own. I'm going to be a better shooter. I'm going to be smarter. Oh, I'll go take a jump course. I'll go skydiving. Okay, I'm going to be better. 
everything they do, I'm going to start preparing myself and I'm going to be smarter in this than I was the day before. So stronger, faster, and smarter every single day. And then I think most importantly is every day do something good for somebody. Help your neighbor, help your brother or your sister or your boss or your coworker or, or somebody who works with you. Just help them in some way. Every day do something because really what it boils down to in most of the positions we're talking about is they need a good team player. They need a good teammate, a good team player. But if you're the strongest, if you're a 15 year old kid, you start doing this and you're working out every day and you're the fastest and you know more about what you're doing than the others who you're competing with and you're a good teammate, when you go up to selection or you're 17, you want to go to BUDS or you want to go to firefighter training or you want to go to police academy or you want to do something physical, if you start that at a younger age, you could be the strongest, fastest, smartest, best teammate of anybody there and you'll be selected at the top of the, the group. And that's what I think are the best four things I could say for someone who's, who's going after something challenging. And then modify it. You know, if it's you want to be the best piano player in the world, every day do something to make yourself faster piano player or how to read music better or to do more drills. But just break it down so every day you're better than the day before. I did that for working out when I, uh, when I met the top triathlete in the world, his name was Dave Scott. I said, Dave, how do you stay in such good shape? He said, well, the sports medicine doctors tell me I'm wrong, but I work out every day. And he told me that I went 21 years without a workout, without a day from working out. And they were good workouts, 21 years without a day off. And um, I got to brush my teeth every day. I said, at least I can do is a half hour workout every day. And I did, and I was hospitalized from overdoing it. So that's what broke the 21. That's what happened after 21 years. But um, every day, do something that makes you a little bit smarter in what you do. You know, every day, do something good for somebody. And every day, do something to make you stronger. That's the best advice I know to give. No, that's awesome advice. Now, doing something to make yourself smarter, for your personal development, other than uh, the subject matter that, that you had to study uh, in your role as a SEAL uh, non-commissioned officer, warrant officer, what are some subjects that, that you studied or subjects that interested you that, that helped you improve? Well, one, I was a lead climber and a medic. So those were my side jobs. So I was always going through additional training, going to the emergency room, working there part-time at night, you know, as an intern without pay, you know, they just let you come in and work. I was climbing all over the world, trying to be better at climbing buildings, climbing rocks, climbing walls, climbing oil rigs, rigs and climbing ships. I was always working to be better, doing climbing specific workouts. Um, as far as being a SEAL, I stayed glued to the news, world politics, what's going on in these countries where we're going in. Um, so when I sh show up in one of these countries where you can be buzzed and go off at any minute, you know, I, I wanted to go know what's going on in the world, what direction that part of the world is going into, how to better prepare for that. Um, jungle warfare, I mean, there's so much to learn about the jungle and how to operate and live in a jungle. And the same with riverine and the same with winter warfare and mountaineering. There's just always so much to know 
And I could never, ever, ever think, okay, I've got it now. I've, I know enough because you might know a fraction of what there is to know. And you have to always realize there's so much more to know. And plus information is always changing. And, um, you know, tactics, what are the tactics? What are the weapons tactics and the strategies we're using going into buildings and ships and trains and planes? I mean, nobody's perfect at it. And you always have to practice and just to be good at a whole bunch of things. You never get really, really good, but you're good and you have to stay good at so many things. SEAL Team 6, you had a worldwide capability. You had to be able to operate anywhere in the world. It was jungle, Arctic, ocean, riverine, or, you know, whatever the desert, whatever the environment is, you had to be able to land and, and work in there and live in there. So there was always way more that we didn't know than we knew. So there's never a time to think, I got it. I'm, I'm good now. I'm, sit back now and I'll, let's just wait for the next mission. That just never happened. Always constantly training and learning and going to courses and being briefed by the experts and briefing other people and learning a subject and briefing the other troops. It's nonstop. If, you stay, if you're there for 30 years, it's 30 years nonstop. I, I've been compiling a reading list of materials for, for anyone that's looking to improve as a leader. I've got books on philosophy, um, leading in high stress environments. There's military specific and uh, fire department specific leadership books. I was wondering if there's one of your books that you've written and maybe another one that, that you would recommend from, from another author. Yes, there is. The book that I wrote that is my favorite book that I've written. And, but the reason is, is because I got to interview and talk with all these people I really looked up to. It's called Reaching Beyond Boundaries. And it's my favorite book that I ever wrote or put together. But a, a, a great leader, I'm gonna show you this here, a great leader, one of the best leaders I ever had with the US government, um, it's called The Character of the Leader. It's just a small paperback and it's some of the best leadership lessons I've ever read or learned. And the person who wrote this, his name is Donald Alexander. That's a pen name. Um, he doesn't want his name out there, but he was my boss and he's done more good for our country than anybody I've ever known. And he's, he's a living legend. And he wrote this book and um, he just simplified it, just put it in a couple of chapters. And to, I keep that higher on top of my shelf because I respect this man so much. And it's the best book I ever read on leadership. And it's a handbook for the young leader. That's awesome. Thank CIA you. CIA director George Tennant is the one who endorsed it. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's and, and um. I'm sorry I'm walking around, but I just keep it high up on the shelf. It's the top book in my bookcase. And it's because I respect him so much. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that we, we should have touched on with regards to leadership or maybe some of your experiences that you'd like to share? 
Well, the only thing is I'd like to thank you for having me on your program, but also thank you for doing what you're doing because you don't do this for yourself. You do it to help others, other inspiring, aspiring leaders, and you're trying to get little, you know, tidbits of information in their toolbox. And so um, I'm very grateful to you for what you do for other people. And it's, it's just a pleasure talking with you. And I hope we stay in touch. Absolutely. Uh I, I can't thank you enough for for allowing me to interview you. This has been a huge honor for me, and uh, I've been I've been bragging about it all week, uh, actually since <laughs> we last talked. Um, oh. So I I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for those nice words. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence please visit hollenbockleadership.com for additional content. Dave's goal is to add value to as many people as possible. So if he can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with him via email or on one of his social media accounts linked on the homepage of his website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.